Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's Susan. I'm sorry, Beckett's out on a medical issue today, so you just have me. I do want to give a heads up if you have little ears in the room. Well, of course I don't get graphic about anything. There's several instances of hanky-panky in this particular episode, and sadly, there's also the death of several children. Now on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. She loved. She laughed. She danced. She cried. She had her fill, her share of losing. And when her tears subside, we think she may find parts amusing. To think she did all that. And she might say, and not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not that. She'd say, I did it my way. The end. Let's talk about Isadora Duncan. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1877, the last federal troops were withdrawn from the southern United States, and the Reconstruction era after the Civil War officially ended. After failing to turn his private library into a public one, cable car inventor Andrew Halliday met with a group of prominent San Franciscans to establish the city's first public library. Romania declared its independence from the Ottoman Empire. With colored lights attached and synchronized to the music of a pipe organ, the first color organ was patented. Although Germany had had them since 1867, the U.S. got its first cantilevered bridge in Kentucky. A 14-year-old girl with the marvelous stage name of Zazzle was shot into the air at Westminster Aquarium in London and became the world's first human cannonball. The first catcher's mask was used in baseball, the very first Westminster dog show, and the first Wimbledon championship were both held. Cornelius Vanderbilt, Brigham Young, and Sioux Warrior Chief Crazy Horse died. Ruth St. Dennis and Alice B. Toklas were both born. And in 1877, future-famed dancer Isadora Duncan made her grand entrance into the world. Angela Isadora Duncan was born on May 26, 1877, in San Francisco, California. She was the fourth and last child of Joseph Charles and Mary Dora Duncan. Although Papa had had four children from his first marriage, they were all grown by the time that Papa married Mama. See, Joseph was in his late 50s when Isadora was born, and that gave him a very long life to establish his character, which I think is best described as charming scoundrel. Joseph was born in Philadelphia, the son of a college professor with extraordinarily bad luck. That began when the college that he worked at in Maryland was entirely consumed by fire, which forced the family to relocate to New York City, where yet another fire destroyed their house, a cholera pandemic broke out, and financial panic turned to recession. Joseph and his brother broke free of the family, hopefully to break that chain of bad luck, When Joseph was just a teenager, they headed west to try their hand as produce and farm animal merchants in the Midwest. Then Joseph decided that the literary world was for him, so he established the first literary magazine in Bloomington, Illinois, which failed in about a year. It was there in Bloomington that Joseph married his first wife, Elmira, and fathered those four children. Then that whole clan moved farther west to San Francisco during the peak of the gold rush migration. You know, if you've ever wondered why the San Francisco 49ers are called the San Francisco 49ers, the team is named after the year that those rugged and fortunate first wave of gold seekers rushed to California in 1849 when gold was found. 
Back then, the area wasn't yet part of the United States. And also unmentioned in that history of the 49ers and the gold rush often, that first wave of people were legally allowed to murder, enslave, or kidnap Native Americans for their land and gold. And they created a genocide of the Native Americans. That's not really talked about very often, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Now in San Francisco, Joseph needed work, so he bounced from one get-rich-quick scheme to another. First, he organized a lottery that lost $225,000, which, according to my handy-dandy inflation calculator, is about $59,020,000. Yikes. But at that time, currency in very unorganized San Francisco was not the currency of the United States. And it was kind of just, haha, one of those things. You lost $225,000. Let's just print some more. Everything in the area was a bit wild and untamed and unconventional. So like he had in Illinois, Joseph decided that he would start a newspaper and a magazine, a literary magazine. Over the years, he would edit four of them. But when his first newspaper building burned down, isn't that curious, he became an art import exporter and then a proprietor of an auction house. He traveled to Europe for business, and it's reported that he sold miniatures of George and Martha Washington to the Tsar of Russia, Alexander II. Somewhere in there, for some reason, lost to history, Joseph and Elmira divorced. And also in there, Joseph kept trying to establish him as a very distinguished San Francisco upper-class businessman and poet, a man of letters who was also very delinquent on his taxes and had an impressive list of women in his boudoir. While Joseph was doing all that, Mama Mary Dora Gray was born in St. Louis, right about the time that Joseph was aiming his entrepreneurial spirit west. She was the last of eight children of Irish immigrants. Her father had immigrated to the United States in 1819, which was the same year that Isadora's father was born. Hmm. The Gray family's path to San Francisco was much more respectable, and their path to success was much more um, successful. Isadora's grandfather, Thomas Gray, was a veteran of the Civil War. He was on friendly terms with Abraham Lincoln. And when he decided to take his family west, his youngest daughter, Mary, was just a toddler. Despite the story that Isadora would later tell of her mother being born in a covered wagon during a battle with indigenous people as the Gray family headed west on the first wave of gold prospectors. Truth, the Gray family took the long way from St. Louis to San Francisco by boat. That would be across Panama through rivers and a little bit by land before the canal was built. And then up the coast of Mexico to San Francisco we talked about this route in the Mary Seacole episode, episode 136. Here's a dropped in history for you. Mary Seacole and the Gray family headed to Panama at about the same time. Obviously, there's no way to know if they ever met. They probably didn't. But wouldn't that be cool? While Isadora's Papa Joseph was exercising his artistic and entrepreneurial spirit, as well as his ability to weeble back up when he was financially knocked down, Isadora's grandfather was establishing himself as a sea captain. He ran the very first ferry service between San Francisco and Oakland. Later, he would serve in the California legislature, very respectable. The Gray family was Catholic. They were proper. They were fairly well off. It was a solid, respectable family. And Mary, that last baby, she was kind of their wild child. She was an accomplished pianist and singer who raised eyebrows with lower-than-proper-cut dresses and a proto-feminist attitude. 
But you can still imagine Captain Gray's reaction when Joseph, who was 30 years older than Mama Dora, also divorced. That's not cool in the Catholic Church. Also an Episcopalian. Oh, my gosh. Imagine Captain Gray's face when Papa Joseph came calling on his younger daughter. We can only imagine since how they met and how they courted is pretty much lost to history. But we do know that they married at the bride's parents' home when Mary Dora was 21 and Joseph was 50. I'm making it a bigger deal than it was, their age difference. But in my, you know, 2020 head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, 30 years. That's that's a lot. But at first, Mama Dora was in the situation that her upper class proper upbringing would have prepared her for. Papa Joseph did make a lot of money in banking. They lived in a fine home, and the first of their babies came within the first year of marriage. First, a girl named Elizabeth, and then the next three were stair-stepped every two years. Augustine, Raymond, and finally, our baby Isadora. In Isadora's autobiography, she has her mother pregnant with her in so much agony that Mama Dora could only eat iced oysters and champagne, and that she, Isadora, began to dance in her mother's womb due to her mother's consumption of the food of Aphrodite. At this point, I should probably mention that Isadora had a tenuous relationship with the truth. She kind of twisted it like she would later twist her body dramatically to tell a story and to project a mood. So how's this for mood? Joseph had shown his colors in those first six years of marriage. Sure, he was a hard worker and he was very good at making money, but he was also very good at losing it. Papa Joseph's Pioneer Bank was located in a five-story architectural gem in San Francisco, and it had begun well. There was about 3,000 people who had accounts in his bank. They appreciated the high interest that they were supposedly getting. But the economy in San Francisco was crumbling in the late 1870s. And with the rapid growth of the area, bank oversight by government had been non-existent. But when they began to ask questions of bankers like Joseph, the bankers didn't have any answers or, in Joseph's case, any actual money. Five months after Isadora, who the family was calling Dora, but seeing as that's Mama's name too, I'm going to just refer to her as Isadora and her mother as Mama Dora. Anyway, five months after Isadora was born, just days before her baptism, it was discovered that the Pioneer Bank, which was also called Duncan's Bank, held a lot of worthless stocks and very little cash. One employee said that the vault never had more than $8,000 in it. As the pressure was building, Joseph scooped up whatever cash he could find. He sold whatever things the family had that he could make some money. And one day, he just locked the doors of the bank. Customers, of course, wanted their money back. So they came calling to Papa's house. But Papa wasn't there. He had gone into hiding. Now, where's the best place to hide in San Francisco? How about a rooming house next door to the chief of police? All right, that's where Joseph went. And how would one go about trying to book passage out of San Francisco? Of course, dressed in women's clothing and a wig. Perfect, especially if you have one of your side ladies helping you plan your escape. But Joseph was about as good at hiding as he was at banking, and a few months later, he was caught and charged with fraud and forgery. Over the next several years, Joseph was brought to trial four times and got off each time. Slithered off is probably more like it. Because you don't run an operation like he was without getting involved with some very powerful people who can pull some very powerful strings. And what did Mama Dora do? 
She wanted to get as far away from Joseph and his scandal as she possibly could. So she filed for divorce. Three years after he was originally arrested, Joseph left town for Los Angeles. That's where the money is, right? Up and coming, big city. It's also where he somehow, this guy, I did mention that he was charming, right? Somehow he got the sister-in-law of one of his grown sons to marry him. Papa wasn't really in their life at all, even though he may have been making a little bit of money down in Los Angeles. He would continue for the rest of his life with the same pattern. Make money. Lose money. Maybe pick up some scandal along the way. Make more money. If making money, losing money, clearing your name, repeat, was a career, he did very well at it. He didn't do very well keeping in touch with his family, however. Isidore tells a story that when she was seven, a man knocked on the door of the house the family was living in, and she answered it. When the man asked for Mrs. Duncan, little Isadora said, I'm Mrs. Duncan's daughter. According to her story, at that point, the man cried and hugged her and told her that he was her father. Isadora was so excited she had never met him before. So she ran to tell everybody, and they all screamed, tell him to go away. So little Isadora went back to the door to tell him that their family was disposed and they couldn't receive him. So the man took her for ice cream, promising that he would return for more ice cream the next day. But more ice cream never happened. And Mama Dora made sure that all of her kids knew that if Papa came around anywhere, he would kidnap them if he could. For the rest of her life, Isadora is going to wax poetic about her charming father. But at this point in my story... Now I'm going to put Papa Joseph, the troublemaker, the problem creator, on the shelf for a while. Because our Duncan family of four, Mama Dora, Elizabeth, Augustine, Raymond, and Isadora, had bigger problems. They had no money. Dora had no husband. They had no home. Remember, Joseph had sold anything of value, the silver, her jewelry, when he felt the pressure coming down at the bank. Even Mama Dora's father had been wrapped up in the bank. He wasn't handing out any money to help support his daughter and grandchildren either. So the little family took a nosedive into poverty. Mama Dora was going to need those proto-feminist beliefs that she had because she was the supporter of her family now. It was time to put theory into action. First, she moved the family to Oakland. It was out of the city. Things were a little bit less expensive, but that didn't mean she could afford much. For years, the family lived in one rental after another of any type, an apartment, a boarding house, cheap hotels. Mama Dora would teach piano during the day. She would knit hats and mittens to sell at local shops at night. But it really wasn't enough money. But she would soon get behind on the rent, and she'd just look at the kids and say, time to start packing. And they all knew that it was time to move to another place, and none was nicer than the last. But what Mama Dora lacked in monetary wealth, she made up for it in artistic encouragement. Even after a day of delivering knit items around town, piano lessons in very nice homes all across the area, and before she would stay up until the wee hours knitting more stock, Mama would play the piano for her kids. She would sing. She would recite poetry. She would read them Shakespeare and Dickens and Keats. She would encourage them to read, too. Isadora loved this time. It was definitely the building block of the rest of her life, including this part. 
because Mama Dora was not a very good money manager. If she did have a slight financial windfall, she would take the kids out for an expensive dinner, or sometimes she would hire help for the house, a housekeeper or a cook. But when that feast was over, the famine began. The kids were back to swiping apples to eat from a neighboring farm owned by the father of Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein is only a couple years older than Isadora and grew up in the same area. For the most part, the four Duncan children were the OG free-range kids. Mama may have been encouraging them to appreciate art, to develop their artistic inclinations, to read the classics, but they had a lot of time to themselves. Mama was gone all day. She was a working single mother. She was gone all day. They had few rules and even less discipline. The kids, of course, did whatever they could. Isadora claimed later to have helped her family by going door to door selling her mother's knitting. And I keep having this question, and maybe somebody can write and answer this question. But if the average low temperature of Oakland is about 45 degrees, and the temperature usually goes between 50 and 70 with no snow, how much of a market was there for hats, scarves, and mittens in Oakland? Hmm. What we do know is the kids were sent to school. Mama Dora had had an education herself, and she made sure that her kids were going to get one, too. It should come as no surprise that free-spirited, perpetual motion Isadora was not a fan of going to school. She was sent at five to Cole Grammar School in Oakland, where she fidgeted, where she once made a scene telling kids that there was no Santa Claus. So much of a scene that she was sent home for it. Isadora spent her school days basically watching the clock and not paying much attention. She would race out at the end of the day for the Oakland Public Library, or sometimes she'd go to the beach or the woods. She said, quote, when I could escape from the prison of school, I was free, she later said. I could wander alone by the sea and follow my fantasies. Isadora broke free from that prison of school when she was about 10. Curiously, she dropped out of school the same year that Jack London, who was only a year older than her, began at the same school. And he was also a library groupie in Oakland with the same librarian who sort of mentored Isadora and Gertie Stein. Her name was Ina Coolbrith. She was also a poet and would become California's first poet laureate. And oh, yes, she was a former lover of Papa Joseph. Oh, it's also connected here. But back to Isadora. When Isadora broke free from that prison, she told her mother that school was a waste of time. She was getting nothing out of it. And since she claimed she looked 16 with her hair piled on her head, she could be helping make money for the family. Now, Mama Dora may have objected, but she couldn't have been very persuasive. And I am certainly not criticizing a single mom raising four kids on her own with very little skills to back herself up. You do what you can to survive. And arguably, Isadora must have been a very challenging child. She was headstrong from the beginning. She was in constant motion. She was smart. She was bold. And she didn't take no for an answer. So Mama Dora didn't say no. And in 1887, Isadora Duncan, aged about 10, finished her formal schooling. When you get ready for work, do you have to decide if it's a stylish day or a comfortable day? Now, you don't have to pick thanks to Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants. With Beta Brand, you never have to sacrifice comfort or function for style. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are really comfortable. They're perfectly stretchy and they stay wrinkle-free. 
I had one of those days. I was going to be in the car for three hours. Then I was going to be doing some lifting of items. Then I had to go to a meeting. What to wear? I wore my skinny leg, cigarette dress pant yoga pants. There's a cute little zipper on the ankle. They didn't wrinkle in the car. They were comfortable when I was lifting my items. And then when I went to my meeting, I looked really stylish. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off your first order when you go to betabrand.com slash chicks. That's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash chicks. Millions of women agree, including myself. These are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Go to betabrand.com slash chicks for 20% off today. Isadora didn't stop her education at about 10. She simply stopped going to school to get it. She went to the library, a place that we can all go, a place that answers all of our questions. Isadora loved learning. She loved the process of it. She loved the discovery. She just hated being taught. She liked to learn what she wanted to learn at the pace that she wanted to learn it. I can understand that. As part of her own self-guided education, she was also studying dance. Now, she loved to go out to the beach, for instance, and watch the waves and see how they moved and make her body. You're swaying now, aren't you? Because I am. And make her body emulate those waves. She would walk in the woods and look at the trees and make her body emulate the leaves blowing in the wind. Her mama did see that her daughter loved to dance, and as a very encouraging mother, she did put her in traditional ballet class. But just like going to traditional school, Isadora hated it. She found ballet class unnatural, too many strict rules. She said ballet was, quote, ugly and against nature. Okay, you want to feel a natural position? It is not any of the dance positions. If you've never taken dance class right now, put your heels together and turn your feet out, left foot facing left, right foot facing right, and make as much of a straight line with your feet as you can. How natural does that feel? It's kind of painful, isn't it? And of course, all the ballet dancers are like, oh, first position, that's perfect. Look, and they, it's gorgeous when they do it, but it's natural to them because they've been dancing like that for years. It wasn't natural to me, and it wasn't natural to Isadora. Her dance education isn't what we would think of now. She didn't spend hours at a bar. Okay, that's B-A-R-R-E, not B-A-R. She didn't stand in a room with a bunch of other ballerinas doing exactly the same thing, the exact same movements with a teacher counting out the beat. She just did it at her own pace, just like she was doing her education. And you know what? I'm sorry, Isadora. I am with you on this Speaking as a child of a former professional dancer who has zero muscle memory, I hated ballet class too. Because Mama Dora herself was raised in a very proper upper middle class home, she made sure that all of her kids took dance lessons. But I'm not talking about ballet class or tap class. They took social dance lessons. They learned the waltz, the polka, the mazurka, which is a Polish folk dance. She also put Elizabeth and Isadora into gymnastics, which they kind of loved. But again, the strict regimen of a class didn't suit Isadora. What she liked to do from her very earliest years to teach herself to dance was to watch not only those movements in nature, but to watch her own movements. What does a step feel like? What muscles do you use? How is gravity playing a role in it? What does leaning into the next step feel like? 
What does raising, just raising your hand, what does that feel like? How does it look? What muscles do you use? That's what she was doing. So to walk across a room took her a long time because she did it very slowly and studying each movement. But she was literally thinking about what steps it took to take a step. And in doing so, she also created her own method of instructing it. Now that she's free from the restraints of a school day, she would also teach kids in the neighborhood how to dance. As the neighboring mamas realized that Isadora was teaching their kids to dance, social dances that they felt they would need in life, and Isadora was keeping the kids entertained and amused and out of the house, Mama started coughing up money for these lessons. So Isadora was forming lesson plans and teaching dance in her backyard. So by the time she was the ripe old age of 12, Isadora Duncan was running her own dance school and helping to bring money in for her family. Elizabeth would help her teach dance. Mama Dora would sometimes play the piano. Isadora loved her new role as the boss of the group. (laughs) And she adopted a uh, uniform for herself. It's a white robe tied at the waist. It was her teaching uniform. Within the next few years, Miss Dora and Miss May, which was the family name for Elizabeth, were both listed in the Oakland City Directory as dance teachers. She wouldn't even be in high school yet, and she's running her own dance studio and being recognized as such. When she was 13, Isadora had her very first professional dance performance, the First Unitarian Church in Oakland. It was a hit. So she and her siblings began to perform actual planned-out variety shows. There would be acting of scenes from plays and singing and dancing and recitation of poetry. First, it was just for the neighbors, but before long, it morphed into a small tour of churches and tiny theaters in the Oakland area. The group called themselves Clan Duncan. That's a nice nod to their Irish roots. Now, I do have to bring Papa up at this point. He is living in Los Angeles with his new family, and he made some money in real estate. So maybe out of guilt? Don't know. He bought his old family a very lovely house in San Francisco. It had huge rooms for dancing. There was a tennis court. There was a barn that Augustine turned into a theater. And for two glorious years, Clan Duncan had a very lovely base of operations, and they performed and lived large, and then Papa lost his fortune again, and the house was lost to creditors, and at this point, I'm going to close the book on Papa. I'll just tell you, in a few years, but Papa Joseph, his new wife, and their 12-year-old daughter drowned in a boating accident off the coast of England. The ship that they were on ran aground and they landed in the water with about a hundred other people who perished in that boating disaster. So Papa Joseph is out of the picture. But again, Isadora reflects back on him glowingly, even though she had very little actual relationship. By the time that Clan Duncan was evicted from their castle, they called it their castle, which tells you exactly how luxurious this house was. Isadora's style of dance was defined. She really wasn't unique to this. We talked about this in the Louise Brooks episode, episode 135. Ruth St. Dennis was also developing her style at the same time. Both of their styles were born by rebelling against strict rules and dusty traditions of ballet. While both women wanted to challenge and change not only how the dancers performed the physical aspects of dance, They wanted to convey emotions, and they wanted their audiences to feel those emotions. 
Well, Ruth St. Dennis's style fused Asian dance influences with what she called music visualizations. Isadora's style blended some elements of ballet with a modern, now it's the 1880s, so it's all relative, with a formal method called the Delsart system of movement. Francois Delsart created this system in his own country of France, but it was all the rage in the United States. His system gracefully tied every single movement and pose to an inward emotion. With a tilt of her head, with facial expressions, with arms raised in just such a pose, and legs gliding, Isadora interpreted poetry and art through dance. And because she had read all those Greeks and she loved Greek mythology, that was kind of her original inspiration. So all across the Oakland area, Isadora was performing in these small venues, usually barefoot, usually wearing a sheer tunic made from an old curtain, how very Scarlett O'Hara, so that the movement of her body would show. She was endlessly trying to catch the eye of a San Francisco area theater production leader, any theater production leader. Isadora wanted to be on a stage by herself, not in a company, not doing traditional dance, doing her dance alone. But the operative word in that sentence was try. Mama Dora did accompany her daughter to auditions, and she completely agreed with Isadora. The city was inhospitable to Dora's style. Mama would leave the audition saying, they don't understand Isadora. So, if San Francisco wasn't going to have her, Mama Dora and 18-year-old Isadora packed up a small trunk, grabbed about 25 bucks, and took a train east to the up-and-coming, exciting city of Chicago. Isadora said, quote, A little pilgrim, I left this kind land of my birth. A train sped me eastward. A long journey it was, and I arrived with no fortune but gold I had. Dramatic much, Isadora? Mama Dora and Isadora arrived in Chicago about two years after our favorite World's Fair. Isadora had her mama in her tunic, one letter of introduction to the Chicago Press Club, and it got her about as far as you would expect. That would be not very far. The press club did nothing for her, and soon Isadora and her mother were completely out of cash. In the hotel where they had been staying, the management kept their trunk and locked them out of their room when they couldn't pay their bill. All Isadora had was that gold of her dance. She didn't even have her tunic. But she was bold and she did believe in herself. She went to Marshall Fields and talked her way into a small line of credit to get a dress. She had met with the director of a small stage at the Masonic Temple Roof Garden. She auditioned for him, and he said that she was promising she could lead in her act with that Greek-inspired dance, but she would quickly have to switch to something, according to the manager that hired her, quote, with skirts and frills and kicks. Going to Marshall Fields, she was able to get a dress with those skirts and frills, and she went on the stage at the Masonic Temple Roof Garden, Not with her own name. They billed her as the California Fawn. And she performed her compromise act for three whole weeks before she just couldn't do it anymore. It was just not her, not the kind of performance that she wanted to do. 
She had met some people in the art world of Chicago and spent some time dancing on a pool table at the Bohemian Club for an audience of artists and writers at night. And during the day, she just kept trying to get in with a theater company in Chicago. But it was the same story in San Francisco. Isadora, you and your act, your dance are not right for the theater. While she was in Chicago, she did have a fast love affair with a redheaded Polish immigrant who did want to marry her. Even at this young age, Isadora did not want to get married. She saw how it had worked out for her mother. She wanted no part of that institution. That was traditional. That is not the life she wanted for herself. But after his proposal, when she thought, well, maybe this is the only way I have to survive. Let me think about it. She landed the big break audition. The New York producer of the time, Augustine Daly, was in town with his theater company. Isadora camped outside the theater and was a nuisance. She kept sending in notes. Finally, she was such a nuisance that he met with her and she didn't blow it. She wrote later that, quote, I had a germ of an idea, a revolutionary idea, which would awaken the world to an intimacy with the art of dancing. What she said to the producer was this, I bring to your theater the vital soul it lacks, the soul of a dancer. Now, this is the producer, the biggest producer in New York at the time. He had dancers, but maybe he liked her spunk. There was something about her that he said, okay, kid, if you can get yourself to New York City, I'll give you a little part in a pantomime. It's a non-speaking part. It's not really dancing, but... How Isadora translated little part in a pantomime was a telegram to her family in San Francisco that said, triumphant engagement. Augustine Daly must reach New York. Wire $100 for fare. So the cash arrived, as did Elizabeth and brother Augustine and the four Duncans headed off to New York City for fame and fortune. Daly was good to his word and he did take Isadora on, but for the first six weeks while they were in rehearsals, he didn't pay for rehearsal time. She had no income and was paid very little for her first show. Uh, she did go on a very short tour before that show closed, but he kept her on in New York and she was cast as a fairy in the company's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was in this production on opening night that, no surprise to any of us who know Isadora at all, she defied the traditional and required staging of the play and danced her little self and her wings into the actual literal spotlight. The audience clapped. They loved her little production. Daly, the producer, did not clap. He was not amused. He did not like not only people stepping out of the staging of the play, he didn't like his performers to be in the spotlight, just one of them. He wanted the applause for the entire show, for everybody. I guess you have to pay the star more, right? But he did let her keep her job, although he demanded, and she did, that she stay in the dark, out of the actual light, so the audience wouldn't interrupt the production with applause again. But at least she had a job. For two years, she did kept getting little parts in his productions, but he wasn't promoting her to anything bigger. He wasn't letting her do the act that she wanted to do, her dancing. She told him, what's the good of having me here and my genius if you make no use of me? But for those two years, the family was living, not well, but they were living. Elizabeth taught dance. Augustine was an actor. 
Raymond was a reporter. Mama gave piano lessons. They lived in a small studio apartment in Manhattan, but they rented it out to other music teachers so that they could give lessons too. This apartment had five mattresses and a piano, and that was it. But plenty of room to practice your dancing, I suppose. Plenty of room to teach dance lessons. And during this time, she also took lessons from others. Yes, she studied under several dance instructors in New York. So her method, her style is not created in some vacuum. There's modern dancers popping up all over the world, and she is still getting instruction in traditional dance. But she's taking that instruction and incorporating it into her dance the way that she saw it. And that's the dance that she wanted to do. And that's the dance that Daly wasn't letting her do. So she quit. She rebranded herself as a choreographic philosopher and used some of the connections that she'd made in those two years to get gigs in drawing rooms with society matrons. One gig led to another. One of her patronesses was the Mrs. Astor. That's right, the Mrs. Astor. Our girl is performing in some very elegant and moneyed drawing rooms. And of course, if you're performing in one drawing room, everybody else in society wants you to perform in theirs. Here's some names. Regular listeners of the History Chicks will know these names. Alva Belmont, Tessie Ulrich, Mamie Fish. That's right. They all booked her. Isadora was the act to have at your parties. Oh, sure. It was quite scandalous to have her there. And these women loved that their friends were all shocked when Isadora would show a little leg or even a leg covered in nude fabric or her bare feet. Now, remember, this is a time where we're not even showing ankles in proper society. But there she is dancing in her diaphanous tunics, showing not only ankle and foot, but parts of her leg. And yeah, her posh audience were a bit perplexed when she finished the choreographic portion of her program and the philosopher portion began. Isadora would do her dances and then she'd go into speeches that kind of slammed ballet. Well, she had formed this art that was natural and it was an expression of the body and the spirit is one, unlike ballet. So she was very radical and her audiences just really didn't get it. Sure, society folks appreciated her flitting about their gardens and she was getting bookings. Darling, does it matter that we don't understand what you're doing? We just like having you here. That was not what Isadora wanted. Yeah, she was getting work, which was great, but she was on a mission, a mission to spread the gospel of her art. She had done a short stint in London with her former performance troupe, and she decided that the people of this world that would appreciate her most would be people in Europe, the London audiences. It was really a combination of her wanting the audience to understand her work and to have theaters who would book her. Because again, she's performing in very small drawing rooms and gardens. She's not on the stage where she wants to be. And it wasn't happening in the United States. So just like when they left California, they headed east. But Clan Duncan's financial situation hadn't improved very much. Augustine had gotten married, so it was just the four of them. And they had a fortunate incident happen when a fire destroyed the hotel they were living in. And because of this tragedy, Isadora lost everything. She was very dramatic about it. 
and she saw an opportunity. So she was able to schedule a few benefit GoFundMe shows around town. One of them was even at Delmonico's, the restaurant for New York society. Our girls got some connections. Because of these benefits, she was able to scrape some money together. And then she found a boat that would take them for free. That's right. Passage for the four Duncans across the Atlantic. So what if the other passengers were all cows? It was a cattle boat. There's an added bonus. Mama can cook for the crew. Isn't that going to be great? While they were very excited to find a way to get to England, Isadora wasn't so excited to use their own names to do it. They registered on the boat as the O'Gormans because, you know, you can't have the famed Duncans on a free freighter. And Isadora herself called herself Maggie. So she was Maggie O'Gorman, which was enough to get her a proposal from the first mate. She's making friends. They're sleeping amongst the cows. And Isadora later claimed that this passage turned her brother Raymond into a vegetarian, which I can kind of understand. So they arrived in England. Isadora disembarked in the summer of 1899. She's 22. She's five foot six inches. She's slender. She's dark haired this week. Next week, she might be a redhead. Uh, she's still quite outspoken. She is still extraordinarily confident, despite all the rejection that she's had over the past few years. And she's mostly penniless. Not that that would stop any of Clan Duncan. Elizabeth did get a lucrative offer as, almost as soon as they got to England to teach dance back in New York. So she did go back. Now there are three Duncans scraping by in London with no gigs. They had no letters of introduction. And she, most importantly, had zero desire to audition for traditional dance companies. So she performed for free in the park. Here's a discovery story. One day, she's dancing in the park for free. She was discovered by an actress who asked Isadora where she was from. Isadora replied, not from Earth at all, but from the moon. This was the perfect answer for the actress. And the actress made some introductions and got her some more parlor and party gigs. Yeah, she's performing in parlors, but she also performed for the Prince of Wales. That's right, Tom Tom. She was making very well-connected avant-garde friends, but she still wasn't performing like she wanted to. Wait, avant-garde, that's French, right? We oui. And Paris was the next city that she knew would finally understand her. This time, however, she did have letters of introduction. Isadora loved Paris. She was a Louvre junkie. But in between visits to Louvre, looking for inspiration from the Greek statues, from other art, she again was on the parlor circuit. Not only did Isadora love Paris, Paris loved her. They got her. Yes! Unlike other dancers, she had no troupe with her. She danced alone. She had no props. Maybe if she was lucky, she could hang a blue curtain as scenery. That was it. There was no ballet leaping for her. Instead, she was dropping to the ground and laying on the floor, not defying gravity like in ballet, but accentuating it and silently acting out art. Yes, silently, she did drop the verbal philosophizing. Good move, Isadora. Rodin himself painted her dancing. That was after he ran his hands all over her body like he was creating her out of clay. If this isn't her people, 
her people don't exist. This is absolutely where Isadora belonged. So performances in France led to more performances in Europe, in Germany, in Vienna, in Budapest. While she was in Vienna, she met yet another dancer who was defying the traditions of dance. Her name was Louis Fuller, formerly Marie Louise Fuller of Illinois. Louis was part dancer, part costume designer, and part scientist. When she danced, she wore these voluminous silk, uh, the best way to describe them is sheets. And she created lighting for herself, which changed the colors of her garment. They loved Louis in Europe. They loved her innovation. She patented lighting systems. What she would do in her act is she would take those silk sheets she was wearing that were yards and yards of fabric and move them around so the costume was kind of doing the dancing. She was truly a pioneer. When she met Isadora, she said she found her as talented as she was eccentric. That isn't the most on-brand sentence for Isadora Duncan. Another one does not exist. Louis introduced Isadora to the right people and got her on the stages that she wanted to get on. And Isadora thanked her by riding that wave of popularity that Louis had helped create onto bigger European stages without so much as a thank you. Now, Louis's career was fine. She was beloved in Europe. She performed all over the world. She was fine, but she's not a household name like Isadora Duncan is. One of the first cities that Isadora rode that wave to was Budapest, Hungary. And it was there on a stage doing kind of an impromptu dance to Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz that she became a star. That's with a capital S and an exclamation point. She was the talk of the town. She was getting admirers and gigs. She met a man, an actor. She called him Romeo. His real name was Oscar Baraji. And he loved her. And he wanted to marry her and take her away from the stage. And that was not what Isadora wanted. She had not worked this long and this hard to be finally at a position where she had admirers unhook her horses from her carriage and pull her around town. She was selling out theaters, and not just because she was a novelty act. She was selling out theaters because she was able to control the emotions of the audience members. They felt exactly what she wanted them to feel. And that, my friends, is the epitome of performance. So what does a 26-year-old dancer do just as her career is hitting a major stride? She has a full tour schedule. She has a filling bank account. What's she do next? She tosses it all to go to Greece. And not just go to Greece to perform. No, no. She is bringing the entire clan Duncan with her. And they're all going to experience the source of her art. Isadora loved it in Greece. Of course she did. She danced in the ruins. There are so many pictures of her dancing in Greece and not the hand jive. I mean, the country, Greece. While in Greece, Isadora adopted as her everyday clothes, not just her performance clothes, a Greek tunic and sandals, okay, which to us is like, okay, that's summer wear, right? No. Imagine a properly clad Gibson girl dressed down to the floor. Maybe it's puddling on the floor. High neck, hair up. Now, right next to her, place someone going to a toga party wearing Birkenstocks. That's the contrast society saw between what they were wearing and what Isadora was wearing. But she didn't care. 
She was a free spirit. She dressed for herself and no one else. She created her own world, regardless of societal convention or rules. And she was loving Greece. She could live there. I know. Let's build a house. Here's a beautiful hill. Why don't we start to build a house? Let's spend a lot of money building this house. We can stay here forever. This will be our home. I can dance in the ruins. Oh, wait, there's no water on that hill? Wait, we ran out of money? In a pattern that's going to follow her for the rest of her entire life and kind of possibly modeled by her mother back in Isadora's youth, Isadora would live big. Then she'd run out of money and she'd have to go dance to make some more. Budget schmudget. Do you sell your product online? Do you find that getting your orders out can be a real pain? I mean, how do you keep track of who gets what? Which shipping carrier should you use? Are you getting the best rates? That's why you need ShipStation. It's the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. Just a few clicks and you'll be managing your orders, printing out labels, and getting your product out fast. You'll be keeping your customers happy and ShipStation makes it easy. My son uses it for his very small eBay business, but he's a teenager. Teenagers get tech, right? So I checked it out. This old dog found ShipStation very easy to use. And even when I did have a question, customer service was so attentive, they even followed up to make sure I got it. No matter where you're selling it, a small eBay business like my son or on Amazon, Etsy, from your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface and makes it really easy to manage from any device, including your cell phone. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. And right now, History Chicks listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use our offer code CHICKS. There's absolutely no risk. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card information. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the little microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in CHICKS. That's ShipStation.com. Then enter code CHICKS. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. Isadora's financial situation kind of resembled those ruins that she had been dancing in in Greece. Surprisingly, her manager hadn't quit on her, although I'm sure he got a lot of wrinkles after she had dropped that tour that he had planned. But he knew a good thing when he saw it. So he booked her some shows in Germany. And that's where the three Duncan women, Mama Dora, Elizabeth, and Isadora, set up their next home. Yeah, she is still wearing her tunics around because when you find a look that you like, you keep it, right? Isadora was dancing, she was filling the coffers, and she was still dreaming. She was dreaming of a dance school. Even though her manager was rattling off his plans for her world tour, she kind of had to tune him out, and she visualized this school. And then it became a reality. In December of 1904, Isadora bought a three-story gabled Swiss villa in Grunewald, Germany. She wanted 40 little beds, each covered with white muslin curtains, drawn back with blue ribbons. 
Then she hung angels over those beds. She put artwork throughout the house of children dancing. In Isidora's dream, the students, they wouldn't pay anything. It would all be free for them to attend. And then she put an ad in the paper saying she was looking for talented children. She wanted to train them in dance, her methods, of course, but she also wanted to teach them art and literature so that those children could be trained from body to brain. In her words, she wanted to prepare them to dance sentiments from the heart and soul. Although she was teaching them in her methods, she didn't want them all to dance exactly alike. In my school, she said, I shall not teach children to imitate my movements, but to make their own. Oh, she is coming, the dancer of the future, the highest intelligence in the freest body. Once the school was set up, the plan was to have Elizabeth handle all the business end and help teach when Isadora was out on tour. They were going to hire a couple of governesses to take care of the children. So Elizabeth began to hit up all the art patronesses in Germany because it was going to take a lot of money to run the school. And she put them on a committee together, the Association for the Support and Maintenance of the Dance School of Isadora Duncan. On December 1st, 1904, the Isadora Duncan School opened. She had 20 students aged 4 till 10. And in that first class, there were six little girls that really stood out. Anna, Irma, Lisa, Marie-Theresa, Margot, and Erica. The youngest was four, the oldest was ten, and it's this core of students who would later be dubbed the Isadorables by a French dance critic. This group of kids was going to do exactly what Isadora had planned. They all became so close that within the next 20 years, all six of those girls, although not officially adopted, said they were adopted by Isadora and changed their last names legally to Duncan. But back in 1904, 26-year-old Isadora needed to make money to keep funding their education, so she did go on tour. Before she left, she met a stage designer named Edward Gordon Craig. I don't think I have to tell you, but Isadora was her father's daughter, and if you can inherit it, she may have inherited his libido. But what she learned from him was never marry. Gordon was different than all the other people that she had had relationships with. He matched her energy, her artistic flair, her charm. And when they met, he was in the middle of a divorce from his wife, who was pregnant with their fourth child, although it was his eighth with other women. She called him Ted. He called her Topsy. Even though her world tour was taking her to Russia, her mind and heart were with him in Germany. And their reunion? Electric. Free-spirited Isadora was totally cool with their non-committed relationship. She believed that women should be able to live and love as they desired. (laughs) And she said that any intelligent woman who goes into marriage knowing what it's about deserves the consequences. She was not a fan of the marriage, which is fine, because that's the relationship she had with Ted, although everybody else called him Gordon. But the society matrons who were helping to fund her school tissed her for those loose morals. They thought that a role model for these little children wouldn't be living her life that way, and they kind of shut their purses. And she fired back at them publicly during a lecture she was giving on dance as an expression of freedom. So these women were no longer contributing, but that's okay, because Isadora had become a worldwide sensation. She just kept going on tour, although that next leg of her tour had to stop several months in because she was pregnant. 
Of course they wouldn't marry. Gordon wasn't even thrilled about having a ninth child, but Isadora was. She wanted children. She loved playing with the kids in her neighborhood as a child and teaching them. She wanted children of her own. So she went alone to a cottage by the sea in Holland. 29-year-old Isadora gave birth to a girl she named Deirdre. Isadora's dream may have been to stay in Germany and raise Deirdre among the girls of her school, but the reality was is that she was the breadwinner, and to keep any of her dreams alive, she had to keep going on tour. So Isadora took her tunics and her blue curtain on the road and left baby Deirdre and Gordon behind in Germany. The baby was fine, but Gordon, he was kind of becoming clingy. A lot of that was clinging to her pocketbook, but he did find solace in the arms of many other women. Unfortunately, that tour, despite its success of sold-out shows, didn't bring enough to keep the school open. Isadora needed an infusion of cash. Isadora needed a millionaire. So it was a good thing that one walked into her dressing room when she was in Paris. He was American, a big fan. His name was Paris, Paris Singer, of the sewing machine singers, darling. He was just a type, a man in the middle of a divorce. He already had kids. And at 33, Isadora gave birth to a son named Patrick at a rented mansion in the Riviera. I'm going to just stop and point out, she's giving birth near the water. She's still drawn to the water, that water of her youth that inspired her is where she's bringing her children into the world. So for the next several years, Isadora's life looked a lot like this. Leave the kids with the nannies, go on tour, return, reconnect, and repeat. Because the Isadorables were getting a bit older, they often went out on tour and performed with her. The stress of all these life changes did change her style, but as her life went on and she added experiences and opinions, of course her style changed. But her former style that had reflected grace and beauty and poetry in motion, she was doing those dances and shows along with darker ones of stories of revenge, of pain. Inspired by some Greek mythology, she would act out stumbling as if she was under a giant weight and against chains. The white tunics were replaced by dark red ones. There's no happy sea waves here, just pain and anguish and revenge and darkness. But the darkness wasn't just pretend on the stage. While she was on tour in Russia, Isidore began to have some disturbing visions. There's piles of snow outside her train window, became images of coffins. Chopin's funeral march played in her head. She thought she saw three blackbirds that kept coming and flying around her studio in the evening. And not even performing with her beloved Isidorables could shake the feeling of uneasiness that she had. While she was back in Paris in April of 1913, Isadora, her brother Augustine, Patrick, Deirdre, and their nanny, whose name was Annie Sim, they had gone out to lunch with Paris Singer, Patrick's father. After their lunch, Isadora had a rehearsal to go to, so she bundled the kids back up in the back of the car with their nanny so that they could go home and take a nap. But on the way home, the car was in an accident. It stalled out facing the River Seine. The driver got out to crank the car and get it running again, but he had accidentally left the car in gear. As soon as the car began to run, the car, the children, and their nanny plunged into the river. Deirdre was six, Patrick was two, and the children's bodies were found holding on to their nanny. Isadora, of course, was inconsolable, and she craved solitude for her grieving. 
she went again back to the sea in Italy. I know that my real self died with my children, she wrote to a friend, and now I feel like my life and my art died with them. She did think that maybe another child could end her grief, and a brief affair with an engaged Italian sculptor got her pregnant, so she returned to France. When she got there, Paris Singer had a surprise for her. He had bought her a hotel on the edge of Paris that she could use as a new school in France. Isadora got to work on the school. She felt like her life was beginning to brighten, that it was starting, that she was getting out of her grieving. But then France entered war with Germany. All of her students were sent home with their families. While they were gone, as the war was beginning, Isadora gave birth to a son in Paris who died just hours after his birth. But she had commitments. She needed to make money. She had expenses. She wanted to reopen her schools. She had previously toured in the United States, but American audience were kind of shocked in a bad way, not like the European audience. Could Isadora do it again? She was booked for shows in Carnegie Hall. So she did them mere months after her son's death. And there in New York, she did a dance to Franz Schubert's Ave Maria, and the audience wept. American audiences were accepting her again. They were loving her. When that tour ended, she went back to Paris. Without the children there, she had this big school. At first, she used it to stage dances for any soldiers who showed up. Then she let the government use the building for the war effort, and she took her performances elsewhere to small theaters, to parks, all as fundraisers for the war effort. And of course, another thing is happening to her. So her style is changing yet again. Her adopted country is at war. She began to add political elements to her work. The first extraordinarily popular one that she did was she depicted France at war. She did this dance alone. She did it wearing a red tunic, and yet she somehow conveyed that she was an entire nation at war. She did the dance to La Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem. And then she added more politics to her dances when she depicted the Russian Revolution when she performed in Moscow. After the war ended, Isadora was touring the world. The Isadorables were touring the United States. But what she really longed for was the life she had had at her school in Germany. She wanted that comfort and that familiarity. She wanted to be teaching again. She said, before I die, at least 100 beings must understand my work and give it to others. She had gone to the government of France. She had given them her school. During the war, she had done so much for the war effort. Perhaps they could help her reopen her studio? No. So she contacted someone in Russia. She had performed in Russia. Russian audiences were always very welcoming to her. And this time, the Russian government was welcoming to her, too. And they offered to open her a new school for their children in Moscow. Isadora headed off to Moscow. The Russian government gave her a two-story mansion in Moscow, complete with a staff of 60. In their original offer, they had said, we'll fill it with a thousand students. Well, in reality, that thousand was 150 that she was given to interview. And of those 150, she picked 40 to attend her school. No, she didn't speak Russian. But does her art really need words to express it? So Russia had given her a school. And Russia gave her something else again, love. 
Isadora now, she's 44, and this time, love came in the form of a 29-year-old Russian poet named Sergei Yesin. He was blonde and blue-eyed, and he was her type. He was divorced and had children. Isadora may not have arrived in Russia being able to speak Russian, but she certainly amped up her lessons once she and Sergei met. She had been in Russia for a bit over a year when the government had a change of policy. They told her that they could no longer fund her school. Of course, she could stay. She could keep her school open in Moscow, but no money for you. She had to fund it herself. Again, she was out of money. So what is she going to do? She's going to go back on tour. She wants to keep her school in Moscow open, but she doesn't want to leave Sergei behind while she goes on tour. Yes, it was love like that. The United States wanted her to come back. She wants to go tour the United States. She wants to make the money. She knows that as a Russian, he's not going to be welcomed unless he's her husband. Russia meant communism, and communism was awful to Americans. They felt it was dangerous to their democracy. And a woman touring in an uncommitted relationship was totally improper. So at 44, Isadora did exactly the thing that she had vowed to never do. And in May of 1922, Sergei and Isadora married. I'll see if I can get some pictures of their wedding on the show notes. He is very handsome, blonde, blue-eyed. In their wedding pictures, he looks about 15. Now married, Isadora thought they would be accepted. Even though he was Russian, he was with her. She was an American. Wow, that's two big mistakes in one decision, Isadora. Marriage to Sergei was, in a word, horrible. He had said once, love does not exist. I like sucking a woman dry, drinking her right up, and then I don't need her anymore. You'd think that would be a red flag, not a challenge, but Isadora made the wrong decision. Whether or not he was attempting to drink her right up, he drank way too much alcohol. He spent too much of her money. He had what was described, although this is not a medical diagnosis, but they was described as like manic episodes. He also had epilepsy, which is just an additional challenge on Isadora's plate. Worse than her marriage, if that's even possible, American audience saw her political dances that she was doing. They saw her skin-revealing costumes. They looked at her as an expat who has lived a lifelong non-traditional lifestyle. Also not in her favor was her own behavior. In talking with a group of reporters, she said, yes, I am a revolutionist. All true artists are revolutionists. And this is so red, and so am I. You were once wild here. Don't let them tame you. Isadora kind of limped through her tour, but the press was not on her side. She cut her tour short. She borrowed some money from Paris Singer. And her and Sergei sailed back to Europe with Isadora on the deck screaming, Goodbye, America! I shall never see you again! Which was true. The following year, the U.S. government revoked her citizenship. And about the same time, Sergei and Isadora separated. They never divorced. And within the next couple years, he would die from suicide. She was still, however, making enough money to keep her Moscow school going. Over the next few years, she performs very little. She, as a lot of us do, was cruising through her 40s. She was not nearly as active. Her body was aging. 
She was putting on a few pounds, perhaps because, as she said, I love potatoes and young men. That's my trouble. Okay. As she's living off the generosity of her friends, she's kind of floundering at this point. She made a couple weak attempts to open new schools, although both failed at different steps in the process. And she settled down as much as Isadora Duncan could settle down in Nice, France. She got a book contract for her memoirs and planned two of them. The first called My Life, and the second was to be called My Two Years in Bolshevik Russia. That'll sell really good in the United States. She began work on them in those next few years, well, dictating them, but they're clearly her words. On July 8th, 1927, 50-year-old Isadora gave her final performance in Paris. She danced to César Franck's Redemption, Schubert's Ave Maria, and Wagner's Tannhauser Overture. She's 50. You go, girl. A couple months later, on September 14th, she got dressed for a day with her friends. Of course, she has a very flamboyant style. She loves those scarfy, drapey items. And she had a favorite scarf. It was a very large, it was two yards long, five feet wide, made of crepe material. It was red with a big yellow bird in the middle of it. There was blue asters and Chinese characters, an 18-inch fringe. It was very dramatic. She had actually said, this shawl is magic. That evening, she hopped into a snazzy red convertible. It was an Amil car, not a car I'm familiar with, but it's a convertible. The top was down. It was a two-door car. It was being driven by her friend, Benoit Felche, who she had nicknamed Bugatti. Isadora's friends were standing on the, on the street when she got into the car. Adieu, mes amis. Je vais à la gloire, which means goodbye, my friends. I go in glory. Her friend, the one who had originally given her that scarf, yelled out, Isadora, your shawl! Pick up your shawl! But the car roared away. The shawl immediately wrapped into the spokes of the rear wheels. Within seconds, Isadora Duncan, age 50, dance innovator, purest of unconventional free spirits, died of strangulation. More than 10,000 people went to her funeral services at the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. There were people from all incomes, all classes, all occupations. They all came to pay their respects to her that day. Isadora's ashes were placed with her children's at the cemetery's columbarium. The Isadorables continued to dance and teach the Isadora Duncan method in a ripple effect that I think Isadora would have used for a choreography inspiration. They did exactly what she wanted them to do. They spread her style and her method of teaching around the world, and it is still being taught today. There are current Isadora Duncan dancers and instructors who are related to those original Isadorables, still teaching. It's a badge of honor that they can say things like, I'm a fifth generation Isadora Duncan dancer. I think that fulfills exactly what Isadora wanted. Okay, how about some media? Let's start with books. I don't know how Beckett does it, but when I research, I generally start with a thin biography. Generally, it's a kid's book, a middle grade book, usually. No shame in that. I really like the one that I used for this. It's called Barefoot Dancer, The Story of Isadora Duncan by Barbara O'Connor. I thought there was a really good one. And of course, there's pictures, and I'm a visual person, so it's always... I, no judging! 
The last book I read was her autobiography. Isadora was quite dramatic in life. She was quite dramatic in dance. And she was quite dramatic in her writing. It's a very entertaining read. Uh, She dances around the truth in many spots. I would read it if I were you. And I would do so with a giant shaker of salt next to me. Tequila is naturally optional. The biography that I liked the most was Isadora, A Sensational Life by Peter Kurth. One of the things I really appreciated is he took a lot of things from her autobiography and then told the real story behind it. There was a really unique one that I picked up, Isadora Duncan, a graphic biography by Sabrina Jones. Now, it's not a deep dive into Isadora's life. It's about 140 pages. But any book that begins, quote, 100 years ago, Americans like their statues loosely draped and their daughters laced up tight. <laughs> That'll get my vote. Plus, the, you got to read the reviews. There's not very many for this book, but one of them, three stars. Very disappointed that the book reads like a comic book. Okay. There is one other book that I used. It's called Isadora Speaks. It's Writing and Speeches of Isadora Duncan. It's a collection of, uh, well, just what it says, writing and speeches, but things that are not in her autobiography. As far as videos go, on YouTube, there is a series of videos by an organization called Isadora Now. It's narrated by Elisa Drew Rosenberg, who is a fifth-generation Duncan dancer. It shows her life through her choreography, as well as showing modern. Now, this was made six years ago, six years ago, modern. Modern dancers who are trained in the Duncan method doing her choreography. There's one teeny tiny short clip, video clip of her, and she just does a couple moves and then thanks her audience. Her arms are stretched. There's no audio. I really appreciated being able to see the dances as Isadora would have done them. And I was watching these dancers and they would strike these poses within their dance. It would just be like a split moment of them in a certain pose. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I saw a picture of Isadora doing exactly that. So being able to see what that pose leads to next and what preceded it, I found really enlightening. I loved it. So I would strongly recommend watching that series. Isadora Now also has a website and an actual dance studio. So if you're in the San Diego, California area, you can go learn the Duncan Method, which would be kind of fun, I think. There was another website which I thought was absolutely the motherload of information. It's aptly named Isadora Duncan Archive. It's just a central depository for all things Isadora, including links to worldwide lists of resources It's a very good tool um, if you're researching and want to learn more about Isadora. So we'll link you up to those in our show notes. In 1969, there was a movie that was originally titled The Loves of Isadora. That would be a really long movie. And if it was made today, I'm not sure what it would be rated. But this one starred Vanessa Redgrave, and the name was changed to Just Isadora, but I honestly couldn't find it online. I tried. My library didn't have it. I didn't go to the sketch video sites that promised it to me because I've made that mistake before. So if you find it somewhere, pick it up. But Hollywood, are you listening? Isadora Duncan's story would be great for a movie. You have this unique character trying to fit into society. (laughs) Her character fluctuates between very likable and, oh my God, no, really? (laughs) 
There's tragedy, there's joy, there's romance, there's dance, there's politics. You don't have to do her whole life. Just pick a section. As far as podcasts go, I found one that unfortunately has gone dark, but thanks to our friend, the internet, they remain. And thank you very much to its creator who continues to pay their hosting fees so that we can all listen to it. It's called Dance Like Everyone's Watching. Episode 24 and 25 is an interview with Alice Block, who is a dance historian and a fourth generation Isadora Duncan dancer. She talks technique and philosophies behind Isadora's choreography and how her legacy rippled through the world of dance. I'm sorry that this ended in April of 2019, but there's 117 episodes. So Dance Like Everyone's Watching had a good long run. And it's there if you'd like to give a listen. And that's it for the story of Isadora Duncan. And in closing, let's end with the words of Isadora Duncan herself from her autobiography. My art is just an effort to express the truth of my being in gesture and movement. From the first, I have only danced my life. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please tell a friend or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you're listening to. You can chat with us sometimes. (laughs) We're not the most social media active people, but I'm on Twitter. Beckett handles Instagram. We're both on Facebook, although quite honestly, we don't do a whole lot in our public page. Most of our chatting is done in our private group, the History Chicks Podcast Lounge. It's just a wonderful collection of people. Um, Once a week on Tuesdays, we all toot our horns and celebrate accomplishments, no matter how big or how small. Everything deserves to be celebrated on Tuesdays. Rest of the time is just discussions about things related to past episodes. Past week, everyone was very excited about the Octavia Spencer movie that's dropping on Netflix on March 20th about Madam C.J. Walker. So we have that episode if you want to get a little backstory on her. Curiously, I'm telling you this as I'm doing this by myself. That was one of the episodes that a few years ago, I had a paralyzed vocal cord and I couldn't talk. And Beckett was uh, able to keep the show going while I was out for several months learning how to talk. If you'll be in London on June 20th, we are going to be there and we're having a Thames dinner cruise. We would love for you to join us. Just go to our show notes and we'll link you up to Like Minds Travel, where you can buy your tickets. Beckett and I will both be there. Our plus ones will be there. Some of the people who are touring around England with us for uh, nine days will be there. And hopefully you'll be there, too. On our website, we have a tasteful donate button, and it is clicked by many of you, and we appreciate everything that you donate to us. It all goes to a very good cause, and not just our library finds. The song in the middle was Awakening by Carrie Newdigate, and the end song is Dreaming and Dancing by Tom Bolton. I'm dreaming and dancing my hands in the air the whole world is waiting the whole world is out there the whole day invites me and each thing i see just sets me off laughing i forget what i'm asking but i know Smiling and shining 
Moving in closer into dreaming and dancing, dreaming and dancing. Shall we dance? Shall we dance? Shall we dance? Let's dance. Shall we dance? Shall we dance? 